waiting for the knocking of the Holy Spirit. And we'll start with Psalm 19. For the director of music, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hand. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speak, speech, they use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of its chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins, that they may not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Now Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 17. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sins of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of your Lord, God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. Neither, shall, <laughs> neither you nor your son nor, or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. And finally, in 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 18, 
For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and the Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. The word of the Lord. I've said many times that I, I love my drive up here every, every day. When I, when I come to Campton and I just see the mountains behind it, it's, it's like the best commute in the world. Or maybe just because I used to do a lot of jobs down around Boston and the drive down into the Boston suburbs is not the best commute in the world. Maybe this just looks better by comparison. But I, I actually think it is quite a beautiful drive. And scripture tells us, as we've just read here, that the beauty and the grandeur of creation actually tells us about God. Paul will say that people are without excuse if they claim not to know about God because creation declares his handiwork. Nowadays, we don't engage with nature as much as previous generations have. We have a lot of things that isolate us from it. We spend most of our time indoors now. We have air conditioners and heaters. We have pellet stoves, wood stoves. <laughs> so that we're not as intimately connected to, the, to our surroundings and, and nature as we might once have been. And some of that is, is, a great, is a great comfort when it's 33 degrees and raining. I like being inside and having heat. I, I'm sadly probably my fallen nature, but I'm willing to give up that slice of revelation that I would have experienced by standing in the almost freezing rain and exchange it for that. But there is a fact that we're, we're separated more from the natural world we used to be. But we still, we still get glimpses. We still, it still can speak to us. I've actually spent a fair amount of my life outdoors and in wild places and as beautiful as New Hampshire is, and I, every day it's a blessing, I, I find something new and pretty here. Some of, the, some of the biggest revelations of God or moments of God speaking to me happened in my previous home out west before a series of moves had, had precipitated my moving to New England. And uh, every morning I have a practice where... I, I, after I'm praying and everything, I'll just sit down with a blank notebook page and I just write out things to thank God for that I've already experienced in my life, just to bring things back to memory. And I kind of have this checklist of, of just experiences that I've had outside that, that just really pierced through everyday life and just told me something about God. 
One time back in 1998, that was a previous century, which is sad, but previous century. One, anyway, one, one time around midnight, uh, I was just feeling uh, antsy because it was the spring of 1998. In the previous spring, I'd been down in Georgia starting the Appalachian Trail. And that next year, I was, I was back in West Texas, and I was just I was feeling antsy because it was getting to be that time of year, and I didn't, didn't have anything to do. So I, I called, I think it was a little after midnight, about 1230, and I, I called up one of my friends, my friend Carl, and I said, hey, let's go to breakfast. He's like, it's 1230. And I go, yeah, but I want to go to breakfast in Rio Doso, and that's 450 miles. So if we get started now, it ought to be about perfect. And um, because I have, had, have always had friends who tended to be brain damaged the same way I am, Carl's like, okay, that sounds like a good plan. So we, we got in the car, and we started to drive west. And driving across west Texas at night is uh, kind of neat. And uh, it's, it's just beautiful, but it's a great drive. You, you head north till you get to Sterling City, and then you go west for a few hundred miles till you get to Pecos, and you turn north and go north through that part of West Texas and up into Panhandle in New Mexico and into the city of Roswell. And right when you get to the UFO Museum in Roswell, you take a left, and then you're on your way to, to Rio Doso. And... The timing of the drive was such that we'd driven mostly through the night, and when we got west of Roswell was when the sun started coming up in the east behind us. And something neat happened. We're still driving across. You're still out on the plains at that point, but there begin to be mountains around you. And to the north of us, there's this big stone mountain called Capitan Peak. It's about a 10,000-foot mountain. And before anything else caught the light, it was just changing colors beautifully from the sun behind us. It was becoming just this deep rose and shading to pink. And suddenly the plains below it, which during the day are just kind of mesquite and prickly pear cactus and choya, not that, not that comforting landscape that you would expect if you're from somewhere that has the color green in its landscapes. But at this moment, they were still shadowed, and they would just look soft and velvet. And then directly to the west of us, over the bulk of the southern end of the Rocky Mountains, the sky was beginning to lighten from, from black just into the deep, deep blue. And I was just driving along, and it just suddenly, it just pierced me to the heart, and it was like, man, anything can happen. There is so much potential. There is so much that can happen in this world. The, the scope of this world is bigger. You know, and I'd, I'd been working through some issues and problems, and that was a really effective way of God grabbing me and saying, you have no idea how much potential is all around you. It really spoke to me. And, and in a way that I could hear, and God is very good at those moments, now that I know him, of, of letting me know, I'm telling you something. Pay attention. We'll have another moment like that. One of my favorite places in West Texas is the Guadalupe Mountains. A lot of Texas is, is flat or humid. There's, there's the hill country. That's hilly. But a lot of Texans don't even know that the west part of the state is mountainous. I have heard people visiting up here say, oh, I love your mountains because we don't have mountains in Texas. 
yeah, we do. You're just from the Dallas, and you just don't know anything, which is, you know, that's a general principle anyway. But <laughs> don't look at me like that. Um, but in West Texas, we have beautiful mountains. Uh, they're the remain. They're just they're the remains of fossil reefs. So their their geography is is beautiful. But my personal favorite place is the Guadalupe Mountains, and there's this place where the highway curving around the southern end of the mountains goes through this pass. It's called Guadalupe Pass. And it's such a windy place that they have placed wind socks at the end of the pass so that 18-wheelers can judge if, they're, if it's actually safe for them to drive through there. Um, the wind can actually reach hurricane speeds through there, and it's, the winds around the southern end of the mountains there are so complex that sometimes you'll be driving into the north end of the pass, and you'll look at the wind sock next to the highway, and it's pointing directly south and you look way down to the other end of the pass and the windsock there is pointing directly north. And all you know is that somewhere between here and there the driving is going to get interesting. But there's a rest area right in the middle of it because it's got a gorgeous view of the mountains. Well one night I was out there with my friends and before we'd driven out there uh, we used to love driving out on full moon nights because you'd, you'd, you'd turn off the headlights of your car and you just drive across the desert by moonlight. It's really cool. But it's not safe. I didn't say it was safe, but it's really cool. <laughs> but this night, this was a new moon. There was, there was no light from the moon at all. And we pulled over at this viewpoint, and we got out of the car, and we were just sitting there, and there was no moon at all. But there's also nothing out there. There's no lights. There's no houses. Or there was. Now there's oil field production, and that brings big lights, and it changes things. But at the time, there was none of that there you could see the mountains perfectly outlined by the stars. It's so dark out there that the Milky Way really looks like somebody took a paintbrush across the sky. It's that. And you could just see the whole mountain range outlined in stars. And you think of all the scriptures where God talks about creating the heavenly host and knowing them all by name. And that's a really good picture to make you not worry about things because God speaks through that and he tells you things about his power and his capacity. Now it's comforting to me because I know God. I know him through his revelation. But if you just know him through the general revelation of creation, things might get a little different. So let's look at Psalm 19 here. The heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. There's a little Hebrew poetic device going on here where they'll use parallel thoughts. So they're going to, heavens and skies, they're actually using two different words here, but they're paralleling. And they're also calling back, the, this language is calling back to the first chapter of Genesis. This is David appealing to the creation account and saying, hey, the very nature of creation the very structure of creation declares the glory of God and proclaims the work of his hand. And that glory, the word glory there, is it's that wonderful Hebrew word kabod, which means weight, impression. It's like if you look at the skies, if you look at the heavens, they're telling you something. They're telling you about the weight, the capacity of God and about the work of his hands, that he made this. This is not by accident. 
And that's going to be the theme of this first half of this psalm. David here is going to, he's going to do two things in this psalm. In the beginning, he's going to lay out the, God, the resume of God as expressed in creation. And then he's going, to, he's going to fine-tune that in the notion of God's law and his covenant relationship with Israel. Now, one of the ways we can tell this is in the beginning when it says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The word they're using for God there is the Hebrew word El, which just means the creator. It's the, the plural of it is Elohim, which is also a name for God. But they're speaking of God as the creator. This is the general term for God. And it says, the heavens, everything that's been made, tells you about God. And a, the skies proclaim the work of his hand. They show you what he's done. Day after day... They pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They're always there, always going. Now, it's interesting because he's going to say they're pour, they pour forth speech, and then he's going to say they have no speech right after that. This is, again, a Hebrew poetic device, and it, they want you to think about what's going on. The heavens communicate. They're always telling you about God. They're not, they never take a break. If you pay attention to creation, it will tell you something about God. Then it says, they have no speech. They use no words. Like, wait, you just said they have speech. Well, the contradiction is to make you think about what's being said. Whenever you come across something in scripture where there seems to be a contradiction, a lot of times that's actually a literary device to make you think about what's going on here. Because sometimes you can just get carried away in the flow of things and you, you enjoy the flow of the narrative and, and so you don't exactly think about what's being, what's being said. And when you get to a change up like this, it's like, think about what's going on. It's, it's equivalent to the Hebrew phrase selah, which you will find in the Psalms, which means take a minute, think about what's going on. So when you have something like this, take a minute, think about what's going on. They pour forth a speech. They have no speech. But they're still communicating. They use no words. No sound is found from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. No matter where you live, no matter what part of the planet you live on, if you live in the deserts of the southwest, if you live in the forests of the northeast, if you live in the cold and clammy island of England, if you live in Australia, if you're at the South Pole, at the Polar Research Station, presumably even if you live in Massachusetts, God still speaks. That wasn't aimed at anybody. <laughs> but there's no place where you get away from this. This is, this is general revelation. And then David is going to give us this picture. He's going to say, in the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. This is, he's going to talk about this creation of God, the tent. The, uh, the sun, and God has made a tent for the sun. He's provided for the sun. There's something going on here that's interesting. 
and he talks about the course that God has given it and that sets it. One of the things is when you look at creation, you can be so overawed by creation. You can be so amazed by the number of the stars and the winds that you can begin to think that that's the divine. Now, Paul will talk about how creation speaks to us of God and so men are without excuse. But one of the first reactions of people to the magnificence of nature was to think that it was divine and mistake it for divine things. One of the chief things people worshipped in, in earlier times would be the sun. You'd say, oh, that's the sun. We worship the sun. But here David's saying the sun is just something God created. He made a tent for it. He made a place for it. He provided for the sun. That's part of his creation. Creation is to speak to us about God, but it's not to take the place of God. And that's interesting because that has always been a human temptation to take some part of creation and to look to that as an ultimate thing, to take it as another God. That's why when we looked at the Ten Commandments, God is very clear. He's like, I'm the Lord, your creator. You're not going to have any other gods before me. There's not any part of creation that you're going to lift higher than me. Part of that reason is because the very first thing we did wrong after God made this wonderful creation, created it as a place for us, much like he pitched a tent for the sun and the sky, he, he created this creation as a place to fellowship with us, a place to live with us. And he said everything in it was very good. Now, that everything at that time, it included both the trees in the garden. It's not that one of those trees was bad, but one of those trees could tempt you to put it in the place of God. And that's the appeal the snake makes. That's the appeal the serpent makes to Eve. It's like, if you take this part of creation, that will, that will level you up like God. Look to this. This will give you wisdom. They weren't lacking in wisdom. They had access to God. They had fellowship with God every day. There wasn't a question they could ask God that he couldn't answer. There wasn't insight they couldn't get from God. But they decided that there was this little piece of creation that would function better for them than God. That somehow God hadn't intended the best for them and that for them, the best thing was to pursue part of creation. So one of the things David wants to do in the beginning of this is say the creation is great and it tells you about God, but it's not a substitute for God. It's just his creation. And now he's going to kind of shift tone. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. So now we're moving from the testimony of creation to Torah to the revelation of God specifically to the Jews. When it says perfect, it means there's nothing lacking in it. It's not like the law was okay. It was nothing was lacking in it. Everything that could be done that way would be done that way, but some things can't be done through the law. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. He had given his people, his nation, this law to help them navigate the world. In a sense, he's giving them wisdom through the law 
much like they sought wisdom on their own from the apple. He's saying, I'm going to give you something that's going to tell you how to walk. And notice, the first half talked about the revelation of creation, and it kept using the term El for God. But now that we've t- we're coming into the specific revelation to Israel, he doesn't say God anymore. He says the Lord. He uses the name Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God with Israel. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. All sufficient for you. So he's bringing it into that personal, nationally personal relationship with Israel. He says, this will give you understanding. This will give light to your eyes. You'll be able to understand. You'll be able to see. You won't be walking in darkness. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. Don't trip up over the term fear. Because of the way the gospel's been presented in, for many years, this message that God is mad at you and he needed to beat up on Jesus so that he's not mad at you anymore. That's actually how people have presented the gospel, which is not, by the way, the Bible presents the gospel. John says God so loved you that he sent his son. Not God was so mad at you that he put his son between you and him so he wouldn't wipe you out, which is somehow why we, we think an effective way of communicating the gospel. It says, but the fear of the Lord is pure. The respect for the Lord, the understanding of the Lord, that there's nothing in that that's going to lead you astray. If you look at the signs, if you look at creation, it can tell you about God, but you can take it in weird ways. But following the Lord and fearing the Lord, respecting the Lord, that's not going to lead you in wrong ways. It says it's more precious than gold, than much pure gold. Gold is attractive. Gold gold can get stuff for you. Gold is very easy to make into a god. Now, nowadays, we're more sophisticated. We have money, and we don't think of it as just claiming gold. We're not Scrooge McDucking it and having a vault full of gold. Okay, I'm too old for some of you, but big pile of gold that you dive in and play in. All right, I got three people nodding. But we still, money makes a good God, and I always have to think about this circumstances in my own life are coming up that are going to change my family's relationship with money. And I got to think about that. And it's like, well, am I, am I counting on money for my safety? You know, am I counting on money for my, my peace of mind? Sadly, it turns out that in some ways I am. But God, in his faithfulness, is just pointing that out to me and showing, you know, you've kind of started thinking about things in a weird way. And it's like, that's right. I never thought that way when I was younger. This is better than gold. This is better than money. Having God in your life, having God relating to you, it's better than gold, better than money. It's better than pure honey from the honeycomb. Better than pure maple syrup from the tree. And that's really good. By them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. 
But who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults, and keep your servant also from willful sins, that they may not rule over me, that I will be blameless and innocent of great transgression. General revelation. Heavens speak the glory of God to everybody. Particular revelation. God has entered into a relationship with this nation, this people. He's given them his laws. We read the Ten Commandments to start this. And then David's bringing it to himself. He's like, search me. Who, who can know their own errors? Because we all have our blind spots. Some of us, our blind spots are bigger than others. And he says, who can discern their hidden faults? We need God. We need his word to show us where we're veering off of what God would have us do. And then I love, forgive me also from my willful sins. Because if we're honest... Not all our shortcomings are from ignorance. There are times, praise the Lord, fewer now than there were before, but there are definitely times where I approach a situation and I absolutely know the biblical way to handle this situation. I know what God calls me to. I know the maturity he wants from me. I know that I'm his man in the situation to relate to it in God's way. And I also know it's not fair and I want my way. <laughs> and sometimes I give in to that and do something stupid. This never works out well for me. I'm willing to bet it never works out well for you. But it's still there. I can't yet switch it off. I'm not, I have not received entire sanctification, as some of my Wesleyan friends might like to say. So I have these willful sins. That's why I need a savior. So that I can be blameless and innocent of great transgression. And then he finishes his psalm and he said, Lord, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Brings it back to his hope in God. So we've got the general big revelation of God the revelation of God to the nation of Israel, the personal revelation of David. And now we're going to go to Paul. And we're going to get to this thing about the cross. Because you would not picture the cross. Just like you might not get to the laws that God requires and that he establishes with Israel from your knowledge of general creation... The knowledge of the law and the Torah would not necessarily lead you to the cross. It might make you aware that you had a need that it wasn't answering. But the cross? Last week, we talked about what an absolute scandal the cross is, how we sanitize it now. But it was really a horrific thing. And if you're saying our God went through that, you're going to lose people. But Paul says, this is what God does. He takes this foolish thing and he destroys the wisdom of the wise. Because the wisdom of the wise is things like, if I try a little bit harder, if we tighten the screws a little bit more, everything will be all right. And that never, never works. It never gets you all the way. You always come up short. And the worst part is because you have good intentions, because you're pursuing a good end, 
You're really not careful with the things you do. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. He said, if you were being tortured by a sadist and, and you, you were crying enough, you might wear them out and they might stop beating you up. But if it's somebody that thinks they're doing something good for you, if they think the ultimate end is good, ooh, they're just going to keep on going. Now, sometimes you might have somebody whose ultimate end is good for you, like God. God can bring you through things you really don't want to go through. But he has your good in me. But a lot of times, humans, we, we create these goals and we're like, we're pursuing a good goal, so it's okay if we step on some toes in the way. But that doesn't work. The way of God is, I'm going to come in and I'm going to die to redeem you. That's a weird, that's a weird thing. We wouldn't come up with that on our own. But that is the central hope of the gospel. That this beautiful creation that got ruined is somehow redeemed and being redeemed through this act of its creator entering into it, coming into it, coming alongside of us, suffering what we have to suffer, and suffering the worst thing that could happen to us, to disarm it. God died so that death wouldn't have any power over us. That's probably not what we would have thought. But that's what God came up with. Well, we're in the season of Lent. This is the third Sunday of Lent. And I've talked before about the purpose of Lent and how it grew out of people examining themselves for baptism. So Lent is a time to think about how we're functioning in the world, how we're living as Christians. One of the things about God, and we've talked now about how God communicates with us, but we don't always necessarily listen. God's revelation is there to the whole world, but not everybody sees it. Now, last year, one of, one of my really good friends from here had the opportunity to travel to San Angelo, my hometown. And when he came back and he was talking to me about it, he said, oh, you must like it because of the people. He's <laughs> like, because it's just flat and ugly. And I thought, you've got to have eyes. If you, walked into the, if you walked into the Louvre, the greatest art museum in the world, and you did not look at the Mona Lisa, but you sat on the bench looking at the walls and the doors, and you might think, you know, that paint doesn't match. I've really seen better buildings. I don't get what everybody's so wild about here. If you're not looking, if your eyes aren't open, you'll miss things. I have never been anywhere where the sky is as much of a show as it is on the plains. Every day you just walk around looking at the world above you. I had, had another friend from here who was like, I don't like it there. I always feel like I'm going to fall off the face of the earth into the sky. But that's it. That's where the show is. But if you don't have the right eyes, if you're not looking the right way, you'll miss it. So during this time leading up to Easter and the resurrection, 
We need to be looking, asking ourselves, are we looking at things? Are we looking at creation with God's eyes? Are we looking at the word of God properly and hearing from it? Are we taking time to look at it? Are we looking at the cross and seeing what God's saying there? Because God's communication goes out day after day after day. And one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, are we listening to it? Now, because we are not just creations, because we are not just the people in this creation, but because we have believed in God's message and we've believed in his son, if we have, and have been moved into the family because of that, we need to add our voices to this chorus. And by that, I don't mean being guilty and knocking on your neighbor's door going, you're going to hell. Don't mean that. It's a bad way to do things. But we do need to be talking about the glory of God all around us, not being ashamed of it, not being ashamed that we believe in his son, not being ashamed that we believe in his love. We need to add our voices to that chorus of voices that's going forth.